The year 2020 was not a good year, believe it or not, for fans of superhero movies. And in particular, uh, 2020 was not a good year uh, for fans of the Spider-Man franchise. Uh, Just before 2020, apparently, two Spider-Man films had been released uh, to great critical acclaim. And just when Spider-Man fans were on the edge of their seat, eagerly anticipating the third in the trilogy, what happened? I think we probably know what happened. Uh, COVID struck, didn't it? And Marvel had to announce a long, long delay. Well, in a sense, St. Peter's, we're kind of in the same boat, uh, aren't we? We as Christians are uh, fans of uh, Psalm number 51, aren't we? And last month we had two installments of this song, but just when we might have been anticipating looking at the end of this psalm, we've had something of a delay, haven't we? As uh, over the last couple of weeks, Alistair came down to preach to us, to minister to us from Inverness, and then I was away uh, last week. So because of that delay, it is probably worth our while noting again the comment that begins this portion of God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, maybe you look at the title again, and what are you reminded about? Do you see? That's right. King David had committed adultery, hadn't he? in that famous episode with Bathsheba, but he didn't stop there, did he? No, David then orchestrated and executed that awful plan to kill Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Did he get off with this, Got free? No, you remember, don't you? That God stepped in, that God brought his prophet Nathan to David, that that God revealed through this story of the rich man, the poor man, and their lambs, God revealed to David something of the horror and the depths of his sin, the horror and the depths of what he had done. Now, answer me this. How did David respond? Was he filled with remorse? Was he filled with regret? I think if you've been here over the last month, you know it was more than that, that David, faced with the horror of his sin, he repented. And it is a repentance that you and I have recorded for us here in this song. But then, certainly myself, as I've looked at this over the last couple of weeks, I've had a question. Is that it? What? Now, like, do you see the, the, the question? Like, we have seen something of David's repentance, haven't we? If you've been here, we've heard him cry for mercy, haven't we? We've heard him confess his sin. We've had him call for, do you remember that transformation last time? Well, what is there left to say? Why is the psalm not finished? What is left to, to look at here? Well, today, in the third of the trilogy, if you'll allow that, Uh, What David will show us is really what accompanies the reality of being shown mercy by God. I hope you heard that. 
If not, let me rephrase it. What are we going to consider today? What will David show us? Here, he will point us to the fruit that grows out of a knowledge of being forgiven by God. The fruit, the products that come out, that grow out of tasting the very mercy of God. And as we look at this section, we are going to see changed attitudes uh, towards three groups. Let me just ruin the sermon from the outset and let me tell you what we're going to see. As we look at this, we'll see from David that through repentance, we'll see a new attitude towards sinners or towards unbelieving people. That's the first thing. Then we'll see a new attitude towards God that comes through the repentance. And then the third one, we'll see a new attitude towards the church. Have we got those? So through repentance, what's the fruit of tasting God's mercy? New attitude towards unbelievers, a new attitude towards God, and a new attitude towards our brothers and our sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we've had a delay, have we? For a couple of weeks. So without further delay... Uh, let's consider firstly what we see about a new attitude uh, towards the unbelieving. Okay. Now, I think we all know that one rule that we should follow when we're reading our Bibles at home, one rule we should follow is to try and pay close attention to the conjunctions that we see in the text. You've probably heard that before. Come on, it's that old adage we've, we've heard. You know, it's, it's a bit cheesy, isn't it? But what do we ask? When we see the word therefore, what do we ask? What is that therefore, therefore? You know, we, we pay attention to the conjunctions when we're reading the Bible. Don't we say it's a bit cheesy? You'll forgive me for it, I'm sure. Well, if we're able to put up uh, verse 13 on the screen, or if you're able to have a look at verse 13, our first verse here, perhaps you will see a conjunction there. It's an important conjunction. It's not therefore, but what does David say? So the bit before he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation, then, and he says, I'll teach transgressors your ways. Now, I think personally, we've got to be quite cautious with this here. See, do not, please, do not for a second think that David's appearing on bargain hunt at the moment. Don't, don't think that he's doing a, his David Dickinson impression. Don't think for a moment here that David is seeking to bargain with God. Do you see it? Oh, God, if you cleanse my sin, if you create a new heart in me, then I tell you what, what I'll do for you is I, I will teach transgressors your way. Don't think of it as bargaining with God. It's not that. What we've got in front of us here is an inevitability. Do you see that? So David's speaking almost of an inevitable response to knowing something of God's cleansing and God's forgiveness and God's mercy. I would ask you to listen to this. Friends, that truly tasting God's grace inescapably, really, leads to wanting to tell other people of God's grace. 
So knowing and experiencing our lives of God's cleansing of our sin, invariably, it leads to this desire that we have that other people might also know something of that cleansing and the forgiveness of their sins for themselves. In fact, I think that there is another portion of the Bible that really illustrates this idea for us. I wonder if you know well the story of the siege of Samaria. Do you know that story? Uh, If you don't, Maybe this afternoon, <laughs> you could read Second Kings chapter 7, 2 Kings 7. Can I just give you in just a snapshot, maybe some of the younger people who might not know it, you can pay close attention to it. So there's the ancient city of Samaria, and it's under siege. And so the, the enemies of God, the Syrians, they've cut off this city, and, and the people in Samaria are, are starving, and they are really starving to death. Now, there are four lepers, aren't they, if you know the story? And there are four lepers, and they're at the gate of the city, and they are starving, and they have this discussion amongst themselves. And what do they decide? The four lepers, they say, let's not stay here. (laughs) No way. Let's give ourselves up to the enemy. You know, you can see the logic, I think, can't you? You know, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, we're starving to death as it is. So these four lepers, they, they move off, don't they? And they go to the, the Syrian camp. Friends, what do they find? They find that camp, the enemy camp, absolutely deserted. God intervened. God caused the enemy to hear chariots. And so the Syrians, they freak out. And they scarper. And the lepers, they come in. They're rubbing their hands with glee. You can see it, can't you? Suddenly there's all this food, all of this drink. They're able to sit down and enjoy all the spoils of war. But friends, if you know the story, it's what the lepers do next that is all important. Because they are sitting in this deserted camp. They're eating food and they're drinking. And they look at one another. And what do they say to one another? They say, we simply cannot keep this good news to ourselves. There is a city starving and God has been so merciful to us. We can't keep this to ourselves. We are compelled by God's mercy to go and to tell starving people of this nourishment. And as you read Psalm 51 this morning, Do you not see something similar here? Just like those lepers, David knows right there an experience of God's mercy, an experience of cleansing. So what happens? Such is God's mercy and goodness. David, compelled to go out and to share this good news with other people. You see it, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And what will happen? I will, I have to teach transgressors your ways. Do you see? Now, I would ask you to turn your attention back to the text. Let me just point out a couple of details from the text. Have a look at the screen. First of all, notice what David doesn't say. Now, think about what he doesn't say. So it's restored to to me the joy of my salvation. Cleanse me. Let me know intimacy with you. And does he say this? "And, and, and, And then I will tell 
transgressors your ways? Does he say, then I will speak to transgressors of your ways? Isn't it interesting to see the verb that he does use? Do you see what is it? I will teach transgressors. Do you see that, friends, being shown mercy by God inevitably leads to a desire to say something meaningful about God and about his salvation, not just a desire to say a passing word and get it off our chest, not just to say a passing comment, but a desire to explain something of how good God is, how gracious God is. It's that I'll teach them, I'll explain to transgressors the goodness of God. But then the second detail is surely to notice the confidence that David the king has. Uh, So if you look at the second line up behind me or in front of you here, so most of you have probably got access right now to the English Standard Version. That's what's on the screen, ESV. And it's wonderful and it's accurate. It's tremendous. Um, I'm a bit old school, so I love the way that the, the older language, the King James Version of the Bible, how it renders the second line. I'll read it to you. I'm sure you'll love it too. So it's the idea of restore me the joy of my salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then listen. And then David says, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. You feel the confidence, the hope, the faith. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Do you see, friends, being restored to God means that we are refueled with faith. You know, we're restored to God and again we begin to see things as they actually are. We experience mercy through confession of sin and we are reminded, yes, that's God. We experience mercy and we remember, yes, yes, God really is this God who does forgive iniquity. He does forgive transgression and sin. Now, friends, this morning as we contemplate this, these, this fruit, this produce uh, from repentance, what do you think? Isn't it marvelous to see these sentiments from David? This idea of witnessing, being compelled from a tasting of God's mercy. It's, it's, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. What is the reality that you and I in St. Peter's ought to face up to? Is it not that that David's experience here is not one that many of us in our lives right now as Christians can share? I I think there's probably quite a lot of us who can look back on times where we were filled with evangelistic fervor. Can we look back on those times? Especially in as we come first to faith, there's that first wave of the knowledge of God's cleansing in our lives that washes over us. And what do we want to do? We, we just have to go and tell people about Jesus Christ. We can maybe look back on that when we first came to faith for some of us, but what about now? You know, I look at my own life and, and, and what is it like? What is it like for the church in the West? What is evangelism? Some of us would say it feels like a duty, doesn't it? Or it feels like a drag. I think for a lot of the church in the West, it feels actually just like a distant dream. <laughs> but are we not actually face to face with part of the problem in, in, in Psalm 51? I ask you this, 
please contemplate it. Is it not our lack of ongoing repentance that is stifling our evangelistic fervor? Is it not that lack of, oh, the intimacy, knowledge of God that comes through confessing our sin? Is it not that that is accounting for some of our reluctance to speak about Jesus? One writer says this, I love it, and I think he nails it. He says that guilt, guilt very often for the Christian, it gives us lock jaw. Say it again, guilt, shame, very often for the Christian, gives us lock jaw. Do you see what he's saying? Like what happens when we are not living lives that are characterized by ongoing repentance? What happens? We begin carrying around on our backs, like the children's talk, the sense of guilt and sense of shame and, and what happens, not sensing God's forgiveness through our ongoing repentance. What happens? We lose our evangelistic voice. Christian friends, I'll ask you a question I know the answer to. Do you long to be a better witness for Jesus? You do, don't you? We all do. And what do we do? Yeah, okay, we'll keep inviting people to read the Bible with us. Maybe we join together tonight. We pray for those who don't know Jesus Christ. We do that. There's something that transcends all of those. Do you know what we need to do if we want to be a better witness? We need to follow after King David. Do we want to be more evangelistic, have evangelistic fervor? Then this week, we confess our sin. We bow before God in confession. We taste his wonderful, rich mercy. And there, on our knees, we will be compelled to go out and tell people how good God is. So we see a new attitude towards unbelieving people. Second, we see a new attitude towards our God. A new attitude through repentance a new attitude towards God. And here, as we think about God and we think about worship, there's two sides to the coin. I think we all know what the two sides would normally be, uh, heads and tails. I want you to, to remember this. The two sides here are song and sacrifice. Please remember those. Song and sacrifice is the two sides of the coin. What do I mean? Well, let's put up verses 14 and 15 as we move on. Verses 14 and 15. What do you see as you look to Scripture in verses 14 to 15? What do you see? Almost immediately, there's an unusual word, isn't there? So there's that word, what is it? Uh, blood guiltiness. So I think it's at this point in his repentance, this point in the song, I think David is confessing the particular sin with Uriah. Do you see that? The, the guilt that is upon him because of the blood that he has seen shed. But then let's go a little bit further. What would forgiveness for that sin lead to? If you look at verse 14, what does it lead to? He says, my tongue will sing. Then verse 15, what does cleansing lead to? My mouth will praise. Isn't it marvelous in a sense? Like just as in the first point, do you remember mercy compelled witness. So what is David showing us now? Mercy compels worship. Isn't that what we find now? 
So just listen, the first point, mercy loosened David's tongue to tell people of God. Now, mercy, a sense of intimacy with God, loosens David's tongue to, to sing and to sing of God's praise. I think there's a couple of things we need to do with this. The first will sound really controversial, but if you don't shoot me to start with and you stick with me, maybe you'll see where we're going. First thing I think we need to do is we need to consider Islam. I think we need to consider the Muslim faith for a moment. Um, With the rise of uh, the the amount of Muslims who are living in this country um, and in the city... Surely it's the case that we are becoming more au fait and more familiar with the central ideas and practices of Islam than we, than we were, let's say, 10, 15 years ago, right? Now, because of that, I think many of us in the room will know that in a sense, Islam is a very, very quiet religion, in a sense, that Islam, when it comes to the mosque, that Islam is a very quiet religion, that singing in Islam, certainly in, in worship in the mosque, is largely prohibited. And as we look at Psalm 51, are we not seeing something of the reason why that is? Why does David sing? David has to sing. He is compelled to sing because he has tasted the mercy of God. He knows the forgiveness and the cleansing of God. So he's compelled to sing to his creator and savior. And so I ask you, why is it that your Muslim neighbor and your Muslim friends Why is it that they don't sing? Isn't it sad? It's because they know absolutely nothing of the cleansing and forgiveness and the mercy of the one true and living God. We lift up our heads for a moment. Don't you look at Dundee and don't you see the harvest field? David from mercy compelled to sing. That's that's the, the first thing that we have to do with song. The second thing we have to do, I think, is to look at not Islam, but actually to look at ourselves. Over the last uh, number of months, Catherine and I have had quite a lot of people visiting us. Quite a lot of friends have come up from London, uh, from a previous congregation. I think they're nosy, personally. (laughs) See what's going on. And we've had family come to visit us. It's been lovely. And uh, a lot of them have come along to worship at St. Peter's. And uh, nearly all of them have come away uh, from St. Peter's and said the same thing. So they've said, hey, lovely people, lovely building. And nearly all of them have said, St. Peter's sings well. I don't get too big a head about it. But many, many of them have said that St. Peter's sings well. And it's true, isn't it? The singing can be absolutely lovely in here. But could this be the case that despite how we sing, that very often, if we examine that, we are still going through some of the motions 
and worship and praise. I assess it. Isn't it the case even this morning? I mean, how often do we really come in to worship? And when we sing, we are fixed on Christ and our hearts are in heaven and we are pouring out our devotion to our God. Often, if you're anything like me, that is not the case. But yet, is it not quite exciting to consider what we've got here in Psalm 51? Friend, can I ask you, what would happen if this week all of us as Christians went out into the week, fell to our knees before God and confessed openly our sin to God? What would happen there? Do you know what would happen? St. Peter's would need a new renovation project. Why? Because propelled by a taste of God's mercy that we would find there on our knees. We would come into this place next Sunday and we would raise the roof in sung praise. David tastes God's goodness and he has to sing. Has to sing to God. So there's song, but if I had a coin here and we flicked it over, I wonder if anyone can remember what the other side was. (laughs) There's song here. But there's also sacrifice. Now, I think we're we're very acutely aware, aren't we, that our society is adept at taking verses of the Bible out of context and using them incorrectly. Doesn't our society love to do that? Uh, Taking verses, phrases of the Bible, taking them out of context, using them incorrectly. Um, One obvious example would be, do not judge. Our society loves that, doesn't it? Loves to tell us what that means. Takes it out of context as though do not judge means you can't criticize anything, anyone, anytime, any place. It's as though Jesus was saying you're not allowed to have an opinion about anything, which of course we know if you look at the context, that's not what was saying. I want you to see that there's a similar danger here. Stuart, would you put up verses 16 and 17, please? Or you can have a look at it in front of you. I'll I'll read the beginning of this. You, You look for the mistake that could be made, would you please? David says, For you will, O God, not delight in sacrifice. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. Can we see the mistake that people could make with that? We we could read that and we could think that David is condemning the sacrificial system as though God will not delight in sacrifices, as though he is lambasting the whole temple offering system. And of course it's not that. One little eye down to verse 19 will show you that actually David does speak of sacrifices that do delight God. No, wait, what is David saying here? Can you see it? He's confronting us with God's desire that his people be truly invested in the worship of his name. Please hear it. God's desire that our hearts would truly be caught up, caught up in the praise of his name. And I think you can see it. I mean, think about King David. I mean, he knows. I mean, he's just committed adultery and murder. I mean, he knows such as the the nature and the depths of his sinfulness. There's simply not enough for him just to go through the motions in a sacrificial system. Doesn't he know that? 
He's seeing the inherited corruption he has. He knows it's not enough just for me to go through the routines of offering an animal and that'll be enough for forgiveness. He knows, no, his heart has to be moved. And if you look at verse 17, I think you'll agree we can go even further. What is it that God wants from us, Christian friend? What is it that God delights in in worship? Look at the words. He delights in us being broken. He delights in us being contrite. Do you see that because it is in our brokenness, in our sadness because of our sin, that we look most intensely to God? It's because right there in the sorrow we have over our sin that we rest most in God. What does he delight to see? Transparency. He delights to see our humility. God delights to see our honesty about our sin as we approach his throne. And so do you, Christian friend, long to please your God? Then follow after David this week. Turn in repentance and be propelled in a God-pleasing song and a living sacrifice that delights your heavenly Father. And then we'll close with a third thought briefly. So we've seen a new attitude towards the, the, the unbelieving, a new attitude towards God. And then thirdly, lastly, a new attitude we see here towards each other. Now, I know because you have told me as I've visited uh, you in your homes or as you've come around to ours, I know that there are a lot of fans of the TV program Masked Singer at St. Peter's. Masked Singer. Certainly some of the younger people in the families love Masked Singer. I will be honest, I have never even seen a clip (laughs) of Masked Singer. I know maybe it was the final or something last night. It was a big moment anyway last night. Steve's smiling behind his mask. Maybe he's a, a secret. No. Yeah, okay. We don't believe you, Steve. Not at all. Uh, but I'm going to have a stab in the dark about what, what Mass Singer is all about, okay? So let me guess <laughs> that celebrities get dressed up. Um, see, I have seen a photo. Celebrities get dressed up, don't they? Uh, they sing. And then I'm going to say either the audience or a panel have to guess who the celebrity is. So that's, I'm guessing that's what Mass Singer is all about. So it's the question, who is it? Got to work out, who is it that's singing? Who is it that's singing? In a strange way, actually, as we close this, this series, this small series in Psalm 51, that is the question that you and I have to wrestle with and work out the question, who is it that's singing? Because if we put up the last verses, 18 and 19, could you read the beginning of it with me? Do you see, David, or it is said, do good to Zion in your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Now, can people see the problem here, perhaps? So some, uh, some people, some really well-respected uh, scholars and writers, they will suggest that this last part of the psalm is a later edition. Do you follow the idea? So it's almost as though people, maybe in Nehemiah's day, ah, when the walls are being built up, 
that that post-exilic community, they look back on the early part of this psalm from a long time ago when David was writing it. They say, wait a minute, that resonates with us. And so the post-exilic community take it for themselves and add a later addition. Okay, you see the idea? Is, is that right? Um, it may be correct. I am, for what it's worth, unconvinced, and I'm going to take the title uh, that we're given here as covering the whole of this, um, and if that's right, do you see what David's doing as he ends? It's lovely, isn't it? What David is doing is appealing to God to extend that mercy to other people, isn't it? He's appealing with God, not just to have mercy on him and to cleanse him and to renew him, but as he ends, he lifts his eyes to his fellow worshipers and he implores God to build up all in Israel who are broken down and who are contrite in the heart. Isn't it lovely? And I want to suggest that's what St. Peter's needs to hear. Because I think you know what it's like if you've been in churches for any length of time, boy, we can get irritated with each other. Can't we? And we can get to the end of our tether with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Tensions can rise in the life of a church through a vacancy or when different ideas come to the fore. Let me give an example. Tensions can rise during a pandemic. And we can become irritated, <laughs> irritated with other people's views and the practices and the outworkings of that in the life of the church. Yet what are we seeing here? We are seeing that a real experience of God's mercy, it overflows into a genuine concern for our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That us being restored to God through repentance, through confession of our sin, overflows in a heartfelt concern, really heartfelt concern for the other worshipers in our life. So are you irritated? Are you struggling in the life of the church because of the other people here? Then perhaps what we need to do this week is fall to our knees. We need to confess our sin. We need to repent. They're on our knees. We sense God's forgiveness. And what will happen? We will be propelled <laughs> into a deeper love for our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And I close with this. Throughout this trilogy of sermons in Psalm 51, we have time and again focused on the Christian. But as we close, if you are not yet a Christian, I would ask you to look at the last verse. If you're not yet a believer in here or at home in the live stream, look at the last verse there. Do you see what David does? He speaks, he looks ahead of a, a, a time coming when God would be pleased with offering, when God will be pleased with sacrifice. If you're not yet a believer, I want you to understand that in a very real sense, that has been fulfilled. At the cross at Golgotha, the very Son of God, Jesus, 
he has offered himself as a sacrifice. What sort of sacrifice? Jesus has offered himself as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of all who will look to him in repentance and faith. And what do we know by the resurrection? We know that that sacrifice at the cross was one that pleased God. That sacrifice, that once and for all atoning sacrifice, by the resurrection we know it was one approved of by the Heavenly Father. If you are not yet a Christian, repent. Repent. Put your trust in Jesus Christ as the only Savior of sinners and as your Savior and Lord. And there is a King greater than David who is willing to accept you today. Jesus is a king who will never, ever be unfaithful. Jesus is a king who does not kill. Jesus is a king who offers you today eternal life. Repent. You know you're a sinner. Repent. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and come to taste that sweet, sweet mercy of the living God. Friends, let's bow our heads and pray.